morning, everyone. Junior Church, you are dismissed to walk. They'll meet you right up front here. Um, while they're doing that, uh, parents, we want to let you know of a little bit of a change that's happening with Junior Church checkout system. Um, all the kids will be walked over there, as you can see. And then when they're in the building, just for safety and security, they are going to end up locking the building. There's not a scare. We're just trying to make sure we're doing things properly, okay? To get in, you have to ring the doorbell. The best thing to do is take, like, Dustin or Tiana or someone in this corner, maybe even my wife. They have a key. They can get you in. But when you go to pick up your kid, you're going to go to the ramp. You'll go up to the ramp, and there's a stop. Um, that way we don't have people going in and causing chaos and not knowing where kids are or who's taking kids or whatever. You'll check them out with one of the assistants there. They'll bring the kid to you. Then you can leave. And then they can make sure all the kids got to the rightful person. And then those assistants and junior uh, church teachers can actually sleep tonight knowing they did their job. Okay? So it's all just trying to be a little more safe, a little more organized. And as things change, we're going to uh, change things and adapt them to work um, for the betterment of the, the church safety and security. Also on the back, there are these bumper stickers that just simply says Jesus is. A friend of mine, a minister, um, came up with this. He has it on his shirts, on his vehicles, like really big on the hood and everything. Um, and there's a website by it. On the back is information of why he's doing this. And so if you want to just look at it, read through it, and if it's something you would agree to, put it on your car or something. Uh, but it's just a way to ask for people to go, what do you mean Jesus says? Jesus says what? Let me tell you. It's a conversation starter, uh, which is why he started this. So I get to talk to a lot of ministers and uh, hear lots of really good stories, horrible jokes apparently because none of you laugh at them. But I heard this story and, and I wanted to share it with you because it really, it really impacted me at, and it really relates to where we are in our study backs. So this minister, he went on vacation with his father. They went back to his father's home country of Berglund, Switzerland. Uh, his grand, or his father came over when he was 19 years old to America, and, and so he went on vacation with his dad, with his father, and his dad's showing him all the sights. He was showing him the school he grew up in, and, and sh showed him this river that he used to go fishing in as a little boy, and all these different areas. And then he showed him his boyhood home. And attached to the house was this big uh, barn with three huge garage bays, and he told him, he told his son that, his father owned a trucking company in Switzerland, kind of like a Swiss FedEx, and they were delivering all these parcels. They had three or several trucks, and they parked them in these three large garage bays. And as they stood there across the street looking at his boyhood home, his dad's boyhood home, this minister heard a story from his dad that he'd never heard before. The father went on to say, you know, your grandfather was a Nazi sympathizer. This minister's grandfather had rooted for the Germans during the war. He would pull all the trucks out of the garage to create a very large open space on the ground floor and then provide space free of charge for the local Nazi party to come and show their propaganda films. He did this. Now, 
here's what the grandfather was thinking. Germany's going to win. There's nothing we can do. So, uh, inevitably, Switzerland's going to be swallowed up by the Third Reich, and an attempt for self-preservation, an attempt to try and protect his family from this onslaught that he knew was coming. He wanted to be known as a Nazi sympathizer, not a Nazi opposer, when they would roll into town. That was his thinking. Now, thankfully, he was wrong. Uh, Thankfully, Germany did lose the war, and the Nazis were defeated. That grandfather saw trouble coming. He saw this trouble really looming ahead, and his mind was spiraling. How do we handle this? This is a big event. What do we do in the face of this? And he chose the Nazi side. He chose the wrong side of the trouble. For the last several Sundays, we've been looking at troubles in the church. We've seen several troubles that have tried to invade in the church. They've tried to hinder the church. And today, Stephen is going to show us that when troubles come, because they are coming, when they come, you and I have a choice in how we face them. We have, uh, what we have in chapter 7 is the longest sermon in the entire book of Acts. We're introduced to Stephen in chapter 6. He's one of the seven deacons who was selected to fulfill a ministry task at the church. In chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen, look how they describe him. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed many, or performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day some men from the synagogue of free slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. There were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Sicilia and the providence of Asia, none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Stephen was a very powerful preacher. And it's very likely that in these debates, a guy named Saul, who we'll come to in a few more chapters, was present at some of those synagogue meetings and may have even entered in a theological debate and, according to this, would have lost Then you go to verse 11. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We've heard him blaspheming Moses and even God. And this roused the people and the elders and the teachers of the religious law. So they arrested Stephen, brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazarene will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. There are four areas of blasphemy that they really charge him with. There's blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against God, blasphemy against the temple, and then blasphemy against the law. They accuse him of all four of these. Um, And they said this, we have heard him talk about this Jesus of Nazareth. Notice they put in Nazareth because they're trying to demean and belittle Jesus. And so they've arrested him, they got him on trial. Now we move to chapter 7. The account continues, and and I'm going to tell you right now, my original intent was not to read the entirety of this chapter, because it's a very long chapter. Um, And I started looking at it, started reading it, started praying and trying to divide it up. And you know what I came to? This is a phenomenal sermon. And if I don't read you this sermon, I'm giving you a pathetic sermon in its place. 
That, that's really what I came to, that you need to hear what God said. you know why it's so important? God recorded it so that we could have it word for word, which means it's really important, and that means I can't dilute it. And so we're going to do our best to get through these several verses. But before we do, let's stop and ask God to invade. God, we come before you. And Lord, right now before we get into this message that you have given us, I ask that you remove us, that you remove me, that you remove our hindrances, that you remove any obstacles so that we can hear your spirit. God, speak to us. Let us know you are here as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's hear the sermon. The high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? This is Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestors Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land, your relatives, and come to the land of the Chaldeans and live in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here. Not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be opposed or oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I, this is God speaking, I will punish the nations that enslave them, God said. And in the end, they will come out and worship me here in this place. Now, this is where the history lesson turns to Jacob's sons. Verse 8. God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. So when Abraham became a father of Isaac... He circumcised him on the eighth day. And that practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob. And when Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs of the Israelite nation. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, so they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him. And rescued him from all his, what's that word? Troubles. And God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom so that the Pharaoh appointed him governor of all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. A famine came upon Egypt and Canaan. There was a great misery, and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, and they were introduced to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and all his relatives to come to Egypt. Seventy-five persons in all. So Jacob went to Egypt. He died there, as did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Shechem and buried in the tomb Abraham had bought for a certain price from Hamar's sons in Shechem. So Stephen is explaining here this whole ordeal with Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, and eventually rose into power. We know this is a history lesson here. God showed to Joseph... In a dream, the famine was coming, and God rescued Joseph through all these events. And then the people of Israel, Jacob's name turns to Israel, the people underneath him, are all saved through this one who was sent out, cast out. And yet through that, God rescued him and brought salvation to the rest of that family. Now Joseph, or Stephen moves from Joseph to Moses, verse 17. As the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. 
And then a new king came to be came to the throne in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. At that time, Moses was born. A beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. One day when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, so Moses came on the man's defense, avenged him, and killed the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day he visited them again, saw two Israelites fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you're brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. He was cast out. There his two sons were born 40 years later in the desert of Mount Sinai. An angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. He went to take a closer look, and the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At this, Moses shook with terror and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go, for I am sending you back to Egypt. Now, uh, Stephen is going to do is highlight the opposition here of Moses' ministry here. God sent back the same man. His people had previously rejected when they demanded, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be a ruler and savior to the people. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among your own people, meaning somebody who's going to be cast out and will come back for your salvation. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. But our, this whole time he's saying, our ancestors, but our ancestors refused listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt, back to slavery. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf, sacrificed to it, and celebrated over this thing they had made. Then God turned away from them and banded them to serve the stars of the heavens as their gods. In the book of the prophet, it's written, Was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No, you carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Molech, the star of your god, Raphim, the images that you made to worship. So I will send you into exile as far as Babylon. 
the people of Israel. At this time, they had just been redeemed. They'd just been saved from slavery. They come out into the wilderness area, and they say, we reject God. Let us make a calf. It's not even like a huge bull. It's a little baby cow. It's small. And they worshipped it. This thing that they had made. They traded the true God for a pagan idol. And for that, God says that they were sent into exile 900 miles away. And Stephen here, then he starts turning his attention to the temple. This is what he was talking about before the temple. And it's what's got him into trouble. So verse 44, our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them in the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in the battle against the nations that God drove out of the land, the tabernacle was taken with them into the new territory. And it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Can you build a temple that is good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? Stephen here now comes to his conclusion of this sermon. He makes personal applications here in these next three verses. And it's going to be using a word of my grandpa, one humdinger of an application. Okay? You stubborn people. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your, he just changed, that's what your ancestors did. And so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You differently disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. This is a very long message, okay? With the question that started out, they turn to him and say, are these accusations true? And he goes into this long sermon. And I can tell you, after spending time this week pouring over this passage and researching it, trying to figure things out, I agree with what Luke described him as. He is full of the Spirit and full of wisdom in how he portrayed the gospel and how he preached to these people. In this incredible array of words, Stephen not only answers the charges of blasphemy that were leveled against him, he actually reveals the true nature of the accusers. It reveals the facts that they are on the wrong side of the trouble. They are on the wrong side of the trouble. Now, Stephen's in trouble. He knows this. He's been persecuted. He's been arrested. He's brought through. He can see that there's trouble coming, but he does something. He didn't try to get out of the trouble. He didn't try to escape it. He didn't try to get out. Instead, he stands there in the face of trouble and starts to preach. I like Stephen all the more now. And it was a long sermon, and I want to follow Stephen's example. Notice that here, uh, the first part of Stephen's sermon, he counters their false accusations. 
First thing he's going to do, it's a, it's a false, it's a lie. The bulk of Stephen's response is very brief retelling of Israel's history. Now, these are religious leaders. These are the guys who would have memorized and known <clears throat> all of this history. If anyone knew the history, these guys would have. So why does he recount this history to them? Notice how he refers to them as um, brothers and fathers in the beginning. When he goes to present this sermon, he addresses them as brothers, a connection, we are of one kin. And then he addresses them as fathers, showing respect and honor. He is not coming in there to slap and kick. After showing respect, Stephen addresses the most serious accusation, the accusation of blasphemy about those four areas. But what is blasphemy? I've had so many people ask me what blasphemy is. Here's just a basic definition of what blasphemy is. It is an insult that shows contempt, disrespect, and or lack of reverence. Purposefully. You choose to insult. You choose to have contempt. You choose to disrespect or have a lack of reverence towards God. That's blasphemy. You say God can't handle it. That's blasphemy. You say God isn't that big. He's not that loving. Those are all blasphemy. Blasphemy is basically saying that God is worthless. God is nothing. God is not real. And Stephen establishes that he believes fully, completely in the God of Israel. That the old covenant established by God is real and is not abolished, but actually fulfilled by this Jesus of Nazareth. In verse 4, it says, God removed Abraham from the land of... Uh, just listen to this list. This is what Stephen talks about God. God who removed Abraham from the land of Chaldeans. In verse 6 and 7, it was God who spoke the promises to Abraham. 9, it was God who was with Joseph when he was sold into slavery. Verse 17, God who fulfilled the promise to Abraham. Verse 20, it's God who saw Moses was beautiful in his sight. 20 and 35, it was God who gave Moses the people as a deliverer. Verse 32, God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. 37, God who promised another deliverer, a prophet like Moses. Verse 42, it was God who sent the people into exile. Uh, 40, uh, 45, it was God who drove the nations out before them in the promised land. 46, it was God who found favor in David. 48 and 9, it's God who has eternal, can't be contained by human hands. Stephen doesn't talk about himself at all here. He's been asked, do you believe these things? Are these what you're saying? And he says, let me tell you about God. He takes the opportunity to get the spotlight off of himself and put it directly on God. Sincerely, powerfully, talks about God. When dealing with the troubles of accusations, the accusations of our faith, don't we try to generally show, well, I go to church every day or every Sunday. Well, sometimes. Well, I, I pray a lot. I, I read the Bible. I give. I, we try to show why we believe in, in proof of that we are good. Instead, what does Stephen do? He didn't defend his actions. He talked about the God he knew, that he personally knew. Stephen answers all their charges about blasphemy. Then he goes further in verse 9. He refers to the patriarchs, these 12 sons of Jacob, which we get the 12 tribes of Israel. These patriarchs, he said, did not recognize the one God provided. This is very key here. 
They rejected the chosen one that God chose. They rejected him. They sold him into slavery. And here's what you see. He's starting to build a case that these ancestors who rejected the Savior, the ancestors who reject the one who had saved them, they are doing the exact same thing. There's a long track record. Secondly, Stephen's sermon, too, connects them to their ancestors, to this whole line of following their heritage. Your ancestors rejected Joseph. Your ancestors rejected Moses. He's building a case that Israel has a long history of rejecting God. You think you're all high and mighty people, but just like your ancestors, you're doing the same thing. And then in verse 51, he's talking about this great history of Israel. And then he comes out, you stubborn people. How many of you like being called stubborn? I know many of you are, and you know you are, but you don't want to be told it. What does it mean to be stubborn? I know I'm wrong, but I'm not changing. That's stubborn, right? You're not going to make me do something, but it's not stubborn against Stephen. It's stubborn against God. You stubborn people. Then he goes further. You are heathen at heart. Death. To the truth, must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. The religious leaders are falling into the same pattern of rejecting God, staying stubborn and doing their way, and rejecting. Stephen gets to the heart of the issue. This all started because he said something about the temple, and they reasoned that this was a big thing for them. Look what it, the place of worship, their temple, actually became the object of their worship. These religious leaders started worshiping the temple, basically. This is the holy temple. Look what we've done. Look what, how we've adorned this holy temple. This is where God resides that we have made. And Stephen brilliantly points out, confronts their idolatrous attitude. So what Stephen does here. When he gets to this part of Israel's history where Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai meeting with God to receive the Ten Commandments, what are the people doing? Arguing and complaining, wanting to go back to slavery. So they made an idol shaped like a calf. They sacrificed it to it and celebrated over this thing they had made. These people, these people saw the miracles of God. These people saw the ten plagues. These people saw the parting of the Red Sea. These people saw the pillar of of cloud and the pillar of fire leading them. These people saw all of that, and they chose to worship a baby cow that they made. That's the fundamental root of all idolatry is to worship something you make. Not who made you, but you make. We all have this tendency to rejoice in the work of our hands and, and to have some pride. I don't want to say arrogant pride, but just, I've made this. It's good. But when we find ultimate fulfillment and joy, not in God, but in what we created, 
That's idolatry. And let's be upfront about this. Just like the ancestors there, we do this. We have people who begin to live vicariously through their children. For dads, it usually revolves around sports. And they try to get their kids to be this great sports person, and, and they really lift up their child as an idol of, look how great they are. And I've made that. That's my son who got that trophy. That's my daughter who got that award. Moms, you're not exempt from that. Many times it's not sports for moms, but they lift up their children's academic, artistic achievements, or even their popularity. They lift them up and say, look at, look at all the awards that they've gotten. You see their, their grade point average? Take after me. And we start elevating this thing we have made. We can become idolatrous when we find fulfillment in our careers. We can become idolatrous as a church. When we start looking at buildings, programs, staff, events, and we rejoice in the work of our hands more than the God who created us. I've seen people. I was at a church and we were going to look at a new building there. And this guy described it. He goes, I want to have a better building than these churches. Why? So they know that we're better. He wasn't worshiping God. He was worshiping prestige. The temple in Jerusalem had become a temple, or idea, a symbol of what they could achieve personally. The worship in the temple had become a subtle form of self-worship. It sounded and looked all religious, using all the right language, but it was coming towards themselves from their own heart. We have worshipped our God in this temple we have made. We have said the right phrases. We have done this. And right here, we get to the heart of Stephen's warning for us, for us today in this message. What was the root of evil and the resistance to God's will? Why did they resist the Holy Spirit? They rejoiced in the work of their hands. They kept looking at themselves, not God. And I'm going to tell you right now, all of us, us, fall into this very same thing even today. Throughout the sermon, Stephen reminds them of the promise that God has made to his people. Stephen reminds them to look at things, even though they seem hopeless, there is hope in the promises. And so what Stephen does here, when facing troubles, his sermon points to hope in God, not in what we can do, not in what we can accomplish. Oh, we're all in this together. No. I'm in it with God. That's a big difference. We're not in this together. This whole thing that's going on in the world is not universal. We are not together because I am not joining the world. That's the big change. We need to put our hopes in God, not the community of man. Over and over again, Stephen spoke the words of hope, of God's promise, of God's fulfillment. For Stephen, the story of Israel's history, their failure. It's not a tragedy of human rebellion. It's a work of God's divine um, deliverance. It's how God worked through 
stubborn people. That's what Stephen's trying to say here. Though everyone was gathered against Stephen, though he was going to lose his very life that day, he had hope in God. And that's it. You want to come at me? Fine. I am standing with God. That's what Stephen's trying to do here. The storm is coming. But the wise man built his house on the, the rock. We, we sing this in preschool. And when I was reading this, I kept thinking, Stephen's building his house on the rock. And those rains are coming down, and he is not going to move. But these foolish, stubborn, heathen religious leaders are going to fall flat. Because they're not building on the rock. And he mentions in verse 52, or 54, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. They accused him. He didn't get mad. He preached. He accused them, and they get infuriated, and they shook their fists at him in rage. And look at his response. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor in God's right hands. At this, they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid him at the feet of a young man named Saul. We're going to learn a lot about Saul in the next coming chapters. As they stoned him, understand, how many of you have been hit with a walnut or, you know, an acorn? You ever played those fights with when you were little? We used to do it all the time and try to peg each other. It's a boy thing. Yeah. It hurts. Not once when I was getting acorns and walnuts thrown at me did I say, hey, don't hold this against them. I went and picked up more. You know, I retaliated. But look what he does here. As they stoned him, Stephen was praying. As the rocks were pouring in on him, as the rocks were hitting his skin, breaking his bones, causing bleeding, as this was happening, Lord, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. Don't hold this against them. The Sanhedrin dragged Stephen out, killed him. They were on the wrong side of trouble. Just like the grandfather I mentioned who chose to support the Nazis, these religious leaders chose to support trouble. Thinking if we do it this way, we've done it this way the whole time. It's not broke. Or if it's, if it's not broke, what? Don't fix it. What a lie. The Nazis... Hey, their system wasn't broke. It was working on their side for a while. While Stephen did this, that, that grandfather chose the wrong side of trouble. These religious leaders chose the trouble while Stephen chose to stand in faith. He chose to be unmoving in his belief of God. He chose to be unwavering in his knowledge of who God truly is. He faced the troubles. He didn't surrender to them. He didn't allow the troubles to overcome him. He didn't allow the troubles to conquer. He stood on his unwavering faith in Jesus. And because of that, 
He lost his life. His earthly existence ceased. And he walked into heaven. Actually, when you break down the Greek, it really says that he fell asleep. Which was the early Christian way of saying, he ain't dead. He's still alive. His body's done. But he's alive. The church is not a building. The church is a living force. An unshakable faith. The church is you and me. This is what we are. Those who gather together under the headship of Christ, despite the troubles around. Despite the troubles, the church, the, the real church, okay? Not people who just gather for social things. Not people who just gather because it's what they've done all their life. But the people who truly, intentionally, purposely gather to honor and worship God and gather to help, support, love, and hold accountable each other. Despite hardship, the real church chooses to continue on the path. No matter where that path is going to lead in life on this earth, the church is willing to make the distance, to go the distance, to leave this place, to make it home, to make it to heaven. So when trouble comes, when it is coming, which side will you be on? That's really the big thing. Stephen was saying all through history, there's been troubles against God's people. And it always comes even harder when they choose to be stubborn and reject God. And I'm telling you right now, the church in America has been stubborn. We have thought we are doing it our way to forget everybody else. I came to church. I sang a few songs. You stubborn and heathen people. It is about knowing God and saying, I don't care what troubles come, I will not move. You want me to accept some foreign, ungodly lifestyle? I'll stand on God's promises. I will love you. I will serve you, but I will not move. You want me to accept some simple practice? No, I'll stand here. Because my God will save me. And I want, no matter what comes this way, that I stand and face that trouble and I see God. And Jesus standing at his right hand. Don't you? Don't you want to be able to say, when the troubles come, my God prevails. He is my rock. He is my fortress. He is my shield. And with him, I will not lose. Troubles are coming, especially to the American church. And, and I don't care what you're going to call it, political, cultural, it doesn't matter. It is a satanic attack. But he cannot win. He cannot win over the people who are on Jesus. That's it. St. Joe Church Christ is doing something. There's a lot of growth, and I'm going to tell you right now, you know what that's made us? A target. He hates us because we're talking about the rock, about Jesus, the unmoving, unwavering faith and promises that are given through Jesus. If you want to be a part of his family, you need to know something. Satan is going to attack you. 
And with that, true believers like Stephen's, bring it. That will not move. The church has to choose. The church, us, has to choose what side of troubles are we going to be on. Are we going to try and say, well, it's probably going to overtake. Let's just sit in the background and, and see where society and culture goes. Are we going to sit there and say, I don't want to make a stance. I don't want to cause ruffles. I don't want to cause any ripples. Or are we going to say, this is what God says. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry. I will love you. I will serve you. But I will not move. It's time for the church to face the troubles. It's time for the church to stand up and face the troubles and say, my God is victorious. Are you ready to do that, church? Are you ready to stay? Are you ready to be his people? If so, let's stand and worship.